Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome back to the Forma podcast from the Searcy Institute Podcast Network a podcast about the intersection of classical thoughts and contemporary culture, and the audio companion to form a journal. I'm Heidi Weitz. In this episode, I speak with Ravi Jain, a co-author of the liberal arts tradition from Classical Academic Press. And of course, Classical Academic Press is good friends with the Searcy Institute, which is the parent organization of Forma Journal. The liberal arts tradition by our guest Ravi Jain and Kevin Clark, is an important foundational text in the classical education renewal. It's a very important book. I have a well-underlined copy in my library at home, and it has been deeply formative to many of us in the classical education renewal. So Forma Journal, of course, jumped at the chance to talk to Ravi about the revised liberal arts tradition available right now for pre-order from Classical Academic Press. So Ravi, thank you so much for being here with us today. Heidi, what a privilege. Thank you. Well, tell us, Ravi, about the revised liberal arts tradition. The original book has been a seminal text in the Christian classical education renewal. So why why a revised edition? Well, thank you so much. I'm honored for your kind words about the first edition. The second edition grew out of a couple things. One was the fact that Kevin and I still felt like our ideas were in seed form in the first edition, and we needed to allow them to simmer a bit more. And so we were just seeing how some of that played out. Kevin was also finishing his Doctorate of Liberal Studies, so he was studying the arts of language. And by the end of his degree, he felt like he had a little bit more insight that he wanted to share about the liberal arts of language. And I think that that part of the book has been well augmented by by the rewrite. The other thing that was very significant for us was we were coming more and more to the conclusion that the church has to play a formative role in growth and virtue for students, and that there isn't some kind of pagan virtue and Christian virtue, but that virtue really is about growth in Christ. And when we start talking about virtue as growth in Christ, then it is obviously highly connected to the church. So that was something that we felt like was missing from the book, and we needed to actually think about that a little bit more. But the other thing that gave us the, you could say, the opportunity to think about it uh, very quickly was um, spending some time with uh, Christian classical educators in China. And one thing that became a critical fork in the road was whether we wanted to continue to understand Christian classical education as kind of some transmission of Western culture or whether it was actually something that was not 
nearly like a, a Western form of education. Uh, because I think we were initially puzzled why Chinese Christians would be so drawn to Christian classical education. And what did you find? Why is that? Well, it's, it's, it's been a little bit mind-blowing, to be honest. And uh, goodness, it's there's some complicated things happening in China and the, the way that the Chinese government is persecuting the Chinese church. Huh. But one of the things that the Chinese government is doing is that they're saying that they want a Chinese form of Christianity. And so what that means is is uh, kind of insidious. You know, they'll look at something like uh, uh, theological texts or, for example, the Nicene Creed, and they'll say, we want a Chinese version of the Nicene Creed. Now, they don't mean that they want it translated into Chinese. They're, what they're trying to say is know that the Nicene Creed is is unavoidably Western. Hmm. And what we want is a Chinese version of the Nicene Creed. And what the Christians have started to recognize is they can't they're not going to go back and change theology. They're not going to go back all these ecumenical councils that the church had, kind of the theological growth of the church um, from the time of the apostles to um, you know the great explosion of missions in the 1800s. You know they're they're receiving the theological inheritance of the church. Um, they believe that the Spirit of God has guided the church through all these decisions, and they're they feel like it would be apostasy, and rightly so for them to try to go back and rewrite this theology according to the communist government's <laughs> dictates. Of course. Uh, does it make sense? Yes, absolutely. But this brings up a really interesting point and one that's, as you know, currently a hot topic in the Christian classical education renewal. And in China, this is a case in point, right? China is obviously an Eastern country with its own rich heritage and culture. What have you learned about classical education in the East? Is classical education an inherently Western endeavor, Robbie? Um, I, I only in so much as the church has been nurtured in the West. Huh. And I think this is the key insight for me is that they're not interested in the West as the West. They're interested in the church. And mm. um, they're very um, grateful that God grew the church up in the West. And they don't see it as imperialist in that sense. They see it as receiving all this transformed um, culture that all this culture that was transformed by Christ. So you know we we don't pass along simply uh, classical texts because they're classical. We we think about um, the classical texts as they were transformed um, through the recep- the Christian reception of them. You know, so the Aeneid was um, received in the Christian West, and it, in a way, it's really transformed through Dante's reading of it, or through Dante's understanding of Virgil. Um, and so, how did the Christians understand um, the classical tradition is part of what this redemption of classical culture. And so, as they think about ways that they would like to redeem Chinese culture, in, in some ways they want the examples you know, of Christianity redeeming Greco-Roman culture. So, it, there was a fullness of time when the gospel came um, to Rome to Jerusalem in the time of Christ. And so it's not incidental that it came to that place. It's not, we can't just kind of say um, we can disregard all the accidents of space and time of, you know, how Latin and Greek and the New Testament being written 
in Greek and things like that. Those things matter, and they've become timeless because of the incarnation. Huh. And so, you know, why our Chinese friends want to study Greek is because they want to read the New Testament. Why they want to study Latin is because they want to understand the theological development of the church. Um, and so they understand science as coming out of natural modern – they understand natural science as coming out of medieval Christian thought. They understand the conversation about human rights as coming out of medieval Christian thought. Mm-hmm. And so it's because of these things that uh, – they really want to understand deeply how Christ impacts all of culture. Huh. And, and that's why they're interested in Christian classical education. I love that. And that, I mean, that brings us to a central component of your book, fundamental to your proposed understanding and practice of classical education in the liberal arts tradition is the notion of piety. And this is so compelling and definitive to Christian classical education. It warrants comment. Will you, Tell us a little about the fundamental role of piety in education, and I'd love to hear more about how you're seeing that in China. Absolutely. One of the things that I've been impressed the more I've researched in the tradition is how Augustine and how Cicero, Gregory Thaumaturgus, thought of piety as the mother of the virtues, Mm. Uh, that you cannot have true virtue without true piety, Augustine says. And um, this helps me understand the Christian reception of the virtue tradition, um, because virtue is not merely human excellence for Christians. It, um, virtue has to do with participation in Christ um, for the Cappadocians and for Augustine. And, um, and when we talk about piety, um, I, piety is really this um, kind of participation in Christ, participation in the body of Christ. Now, um, one of the things that I think is helpful to talk about piety as opposed to the more, you know, other theological language like participation in Christ is to, is that it's a word that even the ancient Greeks understood. Um, And I find it fascinating that um, the Indian emperor Ashoka even understood this word piety. You know, there's Mm -hmm. interaction between the Greeks since Alexander the Great and India. And so there is this transmission of cultural conversation where um, the term Dharma is hugely important for Indians, Indian thought for both Hindu thought and Buddhist thought. And that Ashoka, this really important emperor, translated uh, piety as Dharma. Yeah. I mean, it's just fascinating. Obviously, China is very interested in the notion of filial piety. And so it's all people recognize that reason can't just be disconnected from your commitments of of piety, but mm-hmm. that reason is going to grow out of these commitments of piety. And so I think it's kind of an aberration. Modern philosophy is an aberration of about 300 years, um, which is basically ended now, in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, where for about 300 years, we thought we could have some kind of reason alone, apart from um, commitments of who we are, what we're made for. Um, the nature of reality, and uh, which is, I think all kind of boils down to piety. Well, and as you're pointing out in your discussion about China as a case in point of the larger issue, which is all humans are interested in piety. There is something in the human soul that responds to this notion, however culturally it might be defined in the need to be redeemed. Is that a good summary of, of what you're yeah. saying? That's right. Hmm. Yeah. Well, but you, you teach science. 
Uh, and I've heard you speak with conviction and conscience about the sciences and natural philosophy. How does the new edition of the liberal arts tradition address common queries about science and technology in classical education? Uh, and really what I'd love to hear from you is what does Christian classical education offer to a world obsessed with dominating and subjugating nature? Right. Well, one of the things uh, that has been helpful since the writing of the initial book is two further projects that I've been working on. Um, One was I wrote a book called A New Natural Philosophy, Natural Science and Christian Pedagogy with uh, two friends, Robbie Andreessen, who teaches biology here at Geneva, and then another fellow, Chris Hall, um, Mm -hmm. who taught in Virginia and he focused quite a lot on the common arts in kindergarten through sixth grade. And um, the second project that I've worked on is uh, a mathematics curriculum. Hmm. And the project is generally called the Enchanted Cosmos. Wow. And um, so both of these uh, other two projects uh, have helped continue to refine and inform some of the thought for the revised edition of the liberal arts tradition. Um, and both will be published with Classical Academic Press probably in the next two, three years. But regarding your question about what does Christian classical education have to offer a world obsessed with subjugating, this is um, it's something that is we really worked out a lot and, or we thought had to think through a lot in a new natural philosophy. And the basic conclusion that we've come to is that there's two movements in what we think of as natural science. One is actually the movement towards natural philosophy, and the other is the movement towards technology, you could say, or what I think might have historically been called the common arts. Hmm. Now, um, separate movements, and it's very important to disentangle them, um, because for most of my time as a science teacher, I thought that what I was teaching was natural science or maybe natural philosophy, which asks bigger questions about the world of nature. But then I came to realize over the past five or seven years that what parents expect me to teach is actually technology. Hmm. They expect me to teach that vision of the world that's about subjugating. That's right. That I think you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And so instead of when I'm teaching physics, I think that I'm teaching about truth and wisdom and you know how the dual nature of light points to christ but what parents think that i'm doing is teaching their kids how to you know understand cd players and rocket ships and how to build cool stuff right and how to better on standardized tests so they can get into good colleges now um, let's do the charitable thing just say they want me to build they want uh, both things i guess it's it's fair to want to get into college so but um Let's just say that is it okay to want to build bridges and to raise up doctors? Yes, that's a good thing, actually. Um, so the parents that think that I'm about helping their kids understand how to what they need to know to become a doctor, um, it's not a bad thing for them to want me to do. It's just different from what I thought I was doing, which is teaching about wisdom and truth. Um, right. Instead, they want me to kind of teach a form of technology. Now, the issue um, with that technology is that, just like you said, I think today we have a notion of technology that's disconnected from any natural order or any natural ends. Um, And so it's technology only understood in terms of subjugation as opposed in terms to any kind of uh, art 
uh, what we would call a common art that um, submits to a natural order and participates alongside a natural order. Right. Um, and so I think uh, the first thing to do in order to that Christian classical education has to offer is to separate out um, the pursuit of wisdom, uh, natural science, and natural philosophy, natural history as one part of what a natural science teacher is up to, um, hmm. natural philosophy. And to then recognize that another thing that a natural science teacher is expected to do today is to um, kind of cultivate this common art. Um, and for physics, biology, chemistry, that might participate in something like medicine um, for physics that might participate in something like engineering and so how do we then understand critiques of modern technological approaches and incorporate them within our lessons right and that's a that's a difficult thing to do um, but i do think that it takes us listening to people like wendell berry mm-hmm. um, and others about problems with modern agriculture or listening to Leon Cass about problems with modern medicine, you know, um, are we always wanting to prolong life? Or is there ever a place for dying well? Right. Um, what are the kinds of medical technologies that could work alongside of natural processes instead of always fighting um, things? Right. That's- um, so those are, um, I think, I think we're needing to listen in some ways to a lot of other voices and uh, train the kids to think about the common arts differently. Right. Well, and you, you and Kevin Clark, you recently did an interview with former senior editor, James Kane, which will, this interview will appear in the fall issue of Forma Journal. And in that interview, you made a statement that captured my interest. You said, quote, I was always careful in my writing not to describe an ideal case that is unreachable in practice. End quote. I want to dig into that with you a little bit. One of the accusations leveled against Christian classical education is that it's impractical or idealistic, uh, elitist, that it sounds good, but it's either too difficult or too intangible, really that it no longer has traction in the modern technology-driven consumer society that you're describing. Is that true? Does your research indicate that Christian classical education is impractical in a marketplace culture and economy? No, it's not impractical at all. Um, I think I've discovered that, you know, I teach physics and calculus, and so 11th and 12th graders, most of my time here, I've taught, um, everything I've taught has been at, at the AP level. And you know, teaching physics with calculus at the AP level is generally considered one of the hardest classes mm-hmm. of AP. Um, you know, and the kids, the kids are successful. You know, they're not like, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't describe them as being more successful on AP tests than other kids, but they generally, they do fine. Uh, so that's pretty radical for them to be able to retain some level of success when our curriculum is so different. Right. Um, you know, when we're reading Newton and we're spending a lot of time with uh, developing, um, allowing them to explore experiments that they design and proofs that they discover, you know, for them to have any measure of success on those kinds of standardized tests is actually pretty remarkable. It's remarkable because they're not testing half the stuff that we do in class, (laughs) right? So if we spend time... um, talking about the metaphysics of Galileo and how he dis- discarded formal cause and final cause and then think about you know the, the atomism the um, unitarianism of Newton or you know the Arianism of Newton 
the AP test just doesn't test us on all that time we spend doing other stuff. So the fact that they actually are, you know, they do respectively well um, mm -hmm. when we have a lot of other stuff that we're covering that other schools aren't. I think it shows that, uh, wow, it, you know, what we're talking about here is not impracticable, but it is different. It is different. And I think ideally we will move. I mean, we are, our, our school, the Geneva School is moving away from AP tests because we realize that we can't ask the kids to learn all these things and then kind of only assess half the set of things that we want them to learn. It sends the wrong message. It does. That sends a message. Certainly yeah. that, and to your point, discards the natural philosophy piece, which I probably you and I would both argue is the... Uh, is absolutely necessary for putting the calculations, those other things into a proper context to be yeah. pious with that knowledge. It's good. Another concern about classical education often comes from within. There are those even within the renewal who wonder if modernity has gone too far. Uh, David Hicks, author of Norms and Nobility, and I interviewed him on the former podcast last week. Uh, he wrote a an important piece for Forma in which he argued that the endeavor of classical education presupposes or even requires a certain cultural framework. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, a set of assumptions from the wider culture of transcendence and virtue, and that this framework no longer exists. So then the question, if he's right, the question becomes, does that preclude the endeavor of Christian classical education? And in your opinion, Ravi, is classical education still a robust option in the wasteland? And then how does the book address those challenges? Right. When we read his article in Forma two, three years ago, two years ago, I guess, um, Kevin and I had already made our shift, you know, um, mm -hmm. to, in the revised edition. And we, it, it's for this exact reason that we were starting to recognize that we can't just ignore the church. Right. Um, because he's right, you need a community of formation, and you need a community that plays out these ideals in order for them to be passed down. If Paideia is about passing on a culture, then you need to instantiate the culture. Sure, you need a culture right. worth passing down. <laughs> right. So this is where, you know, I, I think um, Kevin had championed Robert Louis Wilkins' article, The Church as Culture. Um, Robert Louis Wilkin is a professor. He was a professor of history, I believe, at UVA, and uh, he was a Christian, and would talk about, um, you know, the, the church as a culture of formation. And, and when you ask, start asking people, what is culture? You know, it's not merely like the clothes we wear and the food we cook. Culture has to do with core convictions about justice, uh, about truth and things like that. And you start to realize, goodness, you know, maybe we have missed the boat. It's not that the church just kind of sits aside other cultures, but the church actually instantiates the cult, you know, the worship of Jesus. Mm -hmm. and, and how does that transform all of life? And so unless the culture becomes that community of formation and participates in the education of the young in a more robust way, then I think David Hicks is right um, that we don't have the cultural assumptions necessary to sustain classical education, Christian classical education. I think classical education probably is dead. Um, the idea that there's just something classical independent of Christianity. I could see pockets of people trying to live it out but um, I'm not sure that it will it will um, be anything more than niche. Sure. 
And then what about those people who are, uh, whose kids are in, say, a, a, a public kind of maybe a charter classical school uh, or those classroom teachers who, or headmasters who are Christians, but they're within kind of more of a secular classical education context. What do you, what does your book, what do you have to offer to those people? That's not a question I'm very good at answering. <laughs> because um, I think that they will find lots of things in the book that they will resonate with and enjoy. But uh, my entire understanding of the endeavor is what does it mean to have um, the wisdom based on Christ mm-hmm. um, and virtue as growth in Christ? I mean, I think this is it's absolutely the culture of the church, the heritage of the church that I think we're passing on. I, I don't think we're just kind of passing on a disconnected Western culture or this kind of Greco-Roman antiquity. And I worry, I, I just don't know much about um, secular charter schools if they have a robust focus on the Christian medieval period in the sense that uh, they're recognizing it's not the dark ages, you know, that it's a time where many of the most important foundations for contemporary civilization were built. And, uh, you know, and, and I, I don't know how they interact with Christianity. I mean, there is one thing that we put into the new section on moral philosophy is Charles Taylor's critique of the way secular is often used. Hmm. Um, have you read Charles Taylor's book, Secular Age, or uh, maybe Jamie Smith's book, How Not to Be Secular? I have read Jamie Smith's book, but not Charles Taylor, but I'm adding it to my reading list right as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Charles Taylor's book is great. Um, just lots and lots of cool details. But, you know, from Jamie Smith's book, I think you can get the notion that there's different ways of using this term secular, secular one, two, and three, I think mm-hmm. Jamie describes. But um, I found Charles Taylor's big book to be a lot to wade through. I found another essay by him about uh, secular. I think it was How Do You Define Secular in a, in a book that I bought called The Boundaries of Toleration. And in this one-chapter essay, he does a great job of describing the problem with the way some people think about secular and the better way to think about secular. So it's okay to want a secular government in the way that you say, well, how do we live with people that are non-Christian, people that are um, Hindu, people that are you know, Muslim? How do we all live together without constantly you know, attacking each other. If, if what you mean by secular government is that, that's something okay and good to pursue. But if what you mean by secular government is a place where religion is outlawed to be discussed or where faith is off the table for discussion, <laughs> well, that's a totally different version of secular. Right. And he says that this is not um, what we mean. Uh, this is not what people in America have meant when they talked about the separation of church and state um, in the past. And so there's this new modern version of secular, which is a real problem, and it's destroying education because education is so much about passing on, you know, uh, religious wisdom or formative wisdom. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of that wisdom is grounded in faith. Um, And so um, Charles Taylor um, kind of makes the argument that we need, uh, even you could say, in a country with secular government, we need to create space for faith in not just our government, but even within our organizations like schools. 
Right. And so I think there's something there for people that are involved with um, charter schools, um, public charter schools, to start to think about how to engage, um, you know, policymakers on this question right. of um, what does it mean to have a separation of church and state? And, uh, you know, maybe we can actually uh, move the needle uh, in, a, in a way that is more helpful. I mean, the Netherlands um, has a different way of conceiving of secular that would allow Christian classical schools to flourish, you know, so. Right. Well, and it's, it's an interesting question because in order to tell the truth about history, Christianity has been such a formative influence in, in history. And so classical schools who are interested in telling the truth, if they have a conscience, (laughs) um, uh, have got to talk about the faith. Um, And then, perhaps on the micro level, not on the policy level, but on the personal level, to your point that you have so compellingly brought up church and family can gather around and maybe fill in those gaps. But of course, it's ideal for it to be woven within the tapestry of the entire education. So the education, as Charlotte Mason says, education is life. So, uh, but those are, those are thorny issues that you're all taking on in your book. What was your biggest surprise in writing the revised edition of the liberal arts tradition? That's a good question. You know, I have to admit, I think my biggest surprise was getting down to the bottom of this question of virtue, because I have felt, since I started teaching at a Christian classical school 17 years ago, uncomfortable with the language of virtue, mm. um, because I got the sense that it was some Greco-Roman thing that was different from Christianity and that we need to pursue both. That's, that's kind of what I felt like I was hearing from people that spoke about it. And when I um, started to look really at how Christians have used the term virtue um, over the past 2,000 years, I realized they had thought about it very carefully mm-hmm. um, in a way that's extremely biblical um, and I think you know, fits, fits well within um, you know, historic Orthodox Christianity because, for example, Hans Borsma uh, wrote a book, I think it was published by Oxford, called Virtue and Embodiment and Gregory of Nyssa. And um, in the book, I mean, part of what Gregory of Nyssa is doing is, you know, he's kind of an apologist, you know, he's uh, one of the Cappadocians and, and those guys were also smart and they're thinking about how to express Christianity compellingly to the pagan world. And so they're basically saying all these things that you aspired to, you know, Christ fulfills um, and you don't have the power to, to live out the virtues that you aspire to. Christ did. And you can find that power through Christ and through the body of Christ. <laughs> and this is what Gregory is saying. Um, and it's, it's really an apologetic. I mean, it's not just Gregory. Justin Martyr, too, is kind of using this language. Um, Philo, he's kind of contemporaneous with Gamaliel, uh, Paul's, huh. Paul's teacher, is using the language of virtue as an apologetic to the Greeks for Judaism. But in a lot of ways, it fits really well with Paul and with Justin Martyr and with Gregory of Nyssa. And what they're all saying, you know, is that true virtue is piety. It's going to be participation with Christ. Mm-hmm. And once I started to realize this, it goes right up through Thomas, you know, um, this tradition. 
they all understood it. We're the ones that don't understand it. <laughs> you know, and that virtue had to do with believing that there was, you know, a right way to live, that we're we don't just come into the world living the right way automatically, and that there's a path to get there. That's what virtue, the virtue tradition generally held, those three things. Yeah. And you know, Christianity and the pagan world, just like David Hicks says, they believe there is a right way to live. There is a telos or something. And the virtue, the points of virtue were questions, how do we get there? And Christianity was basically saying, you can't get there the way you think you can get there. You can only get there through Christ. Right. Um, so. But it's a worthy, a worthy thing to try to do to get there. And you're right, that, that is not the surrounding culture around us. What about encouragement? What was a what was an encouragement that you encountered as you wrote the revised edition? I was uh I was very encouraged by Brian Williams' uh, conversations with him about the book and uh, he helped us to kind of refine the moral philosophy section a little bit. I appreciated his comments quite a bit. Hmm. So he's the dean of the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University, um, and he's a, he's a brilliant guy. Taught at Oxford for a while. I think it was also very encouraging for me to just kind of witness Christian classical education resonate with the Chinese church. Mm. Um, I was really surprised uh, to see that they wanted Christian classical education for authentic reasons. I mean, you can probably guess that I'm fairly polycultural, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, the first language I studied um, in seventh grade was Chinese, huh. and you know I've studied nine or ten languages since then. And, you know, number of them Asian languages, Japanese and Hindi and Cambodian. And just so I'm very interested in many cultures, and I, I'm sensitive to issues of cultural imperialism. Mm-hmm. So it was just kind of astounding and, and mesmerizing to realize that. This is Christianity freeing. It's it's Christianity giving them their culture back. Huh. You know, it's um, that there's people that want to hijack their culture, that want to hijack the things of the Chinese heritage, and they want to make it for power's sake and for you know tyranny over others. And um, but what Christianity actually has the power to do is to say that part of the Chinese culture isn't so great, but on the other hand, this part is, you know, some of the stuff that Confucius says is really good or some of the stuff that Lao Tzu says is really good. Mm. But right now you can't quite see that because it's all being used as a, as a way to gain power over you and dominate you. But um, what Christianity ultimately has the power to do is to give them back their culture. Wow. Um, And and that's what I saw them recognizing. I mean, or they were doing it without me and they had, already come to these ideas before I got there, but it was certainly quite encouraging. That's, I mean, that, I think that's really remarkable. I love that. I'm so encouraged by that. So uh, the classical education, Christian classical education, rather, renewal has grown and continues to grow, but we're not, you know, we, we always want to keep growing. So based on your research for the book, what growth do you see that still needs to happen in the Christian classical education renewal? Where can we be putting our energy? That's a good question. Well, I think to some degree, we do need to ask hard questions about whether or not we're succeeding with our graduates and just mm-hmm. taking a look at, at how, you know, what's happening with our graduates and how can we serve them better. 
we don't necessarily need to be data driven, but we do need to be real. <laughs> right. Um, and so we need, to be, we need to be careful about making claims that aren't, aren't substantiated or supposing that our methods are always working when they're actually maybe a mixed bag. So that's, that's one thing. I think um, I'm still not quite sure that we have a really robust vision for how it all fits together from school to school. I think there's still kind of like a lot of polyvalence in what we understand is how literature, for example, contributes to the overall um, growth and wisdom and virtue or how physical education contributes to the overall growth and wisdom and virtue. Um, so I think we need to continue to work with each other. I think Forma is doing a great job of putting together pieces that help us to help kind of come together on that. I really enjoy the articles that you guys produce. So, th- so those are, I think we need to kind of continue to grow in our vision and understanding of Christian classical education. And I mean, I will, I do have my own, I do have an opinion that Christians, um, that Christian classical educators or schools still generally think of math and science as functionary mm-hmm. and as opposed to formative. And I think that's an Achilles heel um, for us. I mean, or you can, even worse, it's more of like a Trojan horse. Huh. Huh. Because I think what it's actually, what, what kids hear is that there's all these ideals that we have and, we, and that we hear about in literature and theology and history class. But then there's the real stuff that is like technology and math and science. And here's where the truth is. Um, but of course, there's also these ideals that we have. Huh. And, um, and I just think that's, it just doesn't have to be that way. I mean. Well, it shouldn't. It shouldn't be that way. And I think that speaks in a lot of cases to how undereducated we educators are. So we need people like you to keep telling us this is, it is, it's all one thing that we're pursuing. Yeah. And another way to put it is I think that one of the things that natural science classes accidentally teach, they don't realize they're teaching it, but they accidentally teach nominalism. Huh. And so, you know, we may be talking about nominalism, you know, for hours in our other classes and what a problem it is. But if we don't actually realize that our textbooks are all nominalist in science, um, you know, just exactly teaching exactly what you've said, you know, technological subjugation, stuff like that, unless we kind of address that structurally and rethink the whole thing, you know, and in some ways it almost doesn't matter because they just they end up bifurcating their lives. Right. They have like an aesthetic life and then they have their productive life and like they just never come together. Right. Which is unfortunate. But you are developing some resources for that. How can we get our hands on that? You said through Classical Academic Press within the next couple of years, your math curriculum and your book. Am I right about that? Yeah. So the new natural philosophy, uh, we're supposed to get the final copy to the editors by November 2nd. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know just how that goes. Yep. <laughs> It'll be in November 1st. I'm sure of it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, the release date is uh, December of 2020, I think, for A New Natural Philosophy. And that's, that's great exciting. because it's kindergarten through 12th grade. And it's a perspective of three different teachers teaching, you know, third graders, teaching biology, teaching a mathematical science like physics. Um, so that should give some broad outlines of what could be if we really took this stuff seriously and recognized that it shapes our kids' ideas about reality deeply. Um, 
Now, and the Enchanted Cosmos um, is probably going to come out in pieces. The I finally got a the first rough draft, twenty chapters, which to me has been a real surprise. It's been fascinating. The uh, I've I've come to believe that so much of the problems that we think are due to natural science are actually part of a mathematical philosophy that undergirds natural science and economics and all kinds of other stuff. Hmm. And so getting our philosophy of mathematics right that you know we actually live in an enchanted cosmos, a cosmos that pulsates with Christ the Logos. Um, getting that right <laughs> is is almost kind of more mind-blowing than getting science right. Oh, so. It's remarkable, remarkable. And I think for so many of us who are practitioners in the Christian classical education renewal as adults who've been in a sense, converted to seeing the cosmos as enchanted. As adults, we are, our educations are being redeemed right. through teaching the next generation. And that it is. is a, I mean, it's, it's an endeavor that has led to holiness as well as to, as your point, the, the functionary virtues. So, well, Ravi, we are, we are out of time. <laughs> Although I feel like we just got started. So thank you so much for being here on the Forma podcast. We are so grateful for your work. You have certainly contributed to the great work of the Christian classical education renewal worldwide. So well, thank, thank you so you. much, Heidi. Very generous. I appreciate being a guest on this program. Well, listeners, you can pre-order your copy of the Liberal Arts Tradition at Classical Academic Press. Uh, And don't forget to subscribe to Form a Journal. And keep your eyes out in 2020 for more information about a new natural philosophy and the enchanted cosmos. Uh, We'll catch you next time on the Form a Podcast, where we will continue to explore the intersection of classical thought and contemporary culture. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.